ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello there, welcome to The Minefield. We try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Other times we just like to hang on for survival. Waleed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. How are you, Scott? I, I, I always like the way that you flag what it is we're going to talk about. And that was that was an elegant one, Waleed. It's very like subtle. It's yeah. Very subtle. No, yeah. I like it. I wonder how many people would pick it up instantly. Uh, maybe if they're on the podcast and they see the topic. All <laughs> oh, right. Okay. Yeah. If you're on the radio, I don't think you're flying any. blind, which is yep. just the way we like it. Actually, yep. it's just the way we try to do things ourselves. Yes, indeed. We're talking about the cost of living crisis. I was shocked, Waleed, when we we had, I mean, a 15 second conversation about this on the phone, and I was really interested how passionate you were about it in that really intense 15 seconds, and that it matched some of my own feelings about a topic that we otherwise haven't talked about very much. I'm really excited about this. Hang on, hang on. I feel like I've sold you this under false pretenses. I I'd, I, don't feel that I have a, a conspicuous passion on this. I just had some thoughts about it. Yes. Did, I, did I come across as being <laughs> on fire about it? Not, not on fire. You're very rarely on fire about anything that doesn't involve Richmond or Liverpool. <laughs> but this particular thing, there was, I, I detected some heat. There were some ripples. Really? Yeah. Yeah, there were. Wow. I felt I felt none of that. Anyway, well, I guess we'll see. Maybe well, you know, the other possibility is I have so completely misread you, and I'm going to bring a certain, you know, interest to this that uh, you'll meet with a, what do they say, a, a straight bat? Is that the right? Um... Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, look, I'm interested. I'm definitely interested. In fact, I'm, I'm deeply interested in the topic. Mm. I just, it's just not a, I'm not passionate in the sense that I'm angry about particular things or whatever. It, I just think, I think there are ways of looking at this that are different to the way we are that might be worth keeping in mind, not necessarily yes, just determinative or anything like that. I just think there are certain things that we might be able to bring out. One thing I do think that is interesting before we get into the topic proper is just to stand back and observe that we are in an interesting political moment because our politics has become material and economic again. Yeah, that's right in a way that it just hasn't been for so long. And we've had so many conversations really about how politics has become overwhelmingly identity-driven and immaterial. So symbolic, yeah, symbolic identity-based arguments have really come to the fore. And I do detect they've started diminishing a little bit. That could just be fatigue with that style of politics. I suspect there's a bit of that. But I think it's also that genuine material conditions have become the most pressing concern for a lot of people. Uh, and so what's old is new again. Yeah. Um, I don't know that we've quite discovered a po- or rediscovered a politics of class, certainly not in the way that might have existed when class was kind of written into the structures of our lives. But but certainly a politics of, of material conditions and economics. And I do think, at the risk of indulging in sort of political punditry, I do think the Albanese government has recognised that. Uh, you maybe say the voice to parliament is a bit of an identity-based thing, but I don't think that would be a fair characterization. Apart from that, really, though, overwhelmingly what they're talking about is very practical um, economic material stuff. Yes. Um, it's just interesting. We haven't... And so culture wars don't quite have the same purchase in our political conversations, as, as in our parliamentary political conversation, that they once did. It's almost like we don't have time for them now. We've got back to sort of the quote-unquote real politics. Yes. Mm. I think that's a wonderful way of putting it. I think that very fact elevates the potential threat to politics that's posed by the cost-of-living crisis. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I was thinking about it the other way, that it might have actually, I don't know, saved is too strong a term. No. But but done politics a favour. Yeah. Wow. This is going to be interesting. Because I, I think I have the opposite read. Okay. So let's, can we just try to sketch a few things out to try to plot what it is we're talking about and what it is we're not talking about? And I really need to say from the outset, um, as someone who lives and who has always chosen to live in uh, low to middle class areas, low income to middle income earning areas, 
uh, as someone who, I mean, I not only do I sort of work in this space, but I know people immediately for whom the ordeal of the last sort of 19 to 20 months has been backbreaking. It's not a choice between, you know, do I go out for dinner this week or do I sort of cook a modest pasta dish at home for my children? It's, do I pay this bill on time or do I put food on the table mm. this evening? Yep. So, uh, in talking about the cost of living crisis the way we are, there is no attempt here. I, I feel like I really need to state this quite strongly. There's no attempt here to make light of it or to usher it into the realm of ideas where we can play around a little bit and kind of throw up uh, competing consequences in response to possible sort of policy settings. It's not that at all. Uh, it's rather, I think, that we find ourselves in a really interesting position where we've had a conflation, a convergence of a number of different forces. Some of them are peculiar to Australia. Most of them are not. And this convergence of forces has come together to create a condition that is that some in our common life are altogether oblivious to. Others will feel and feel powerfully, but not feel as a threat to what we might call their well-being, to a kind of deeper human condition of well-being. And there are some for whom this feels damn near existential. It feels as though life itself is being jeopardized. So what are these factors? I don't know about you, but I mean, I, I think it's very important that we enumerate them, that we be very clear about sort of what's conspired to do this. And then there's a historical analogy that I'd like to raise with you, Willie, that could be enlightening. You may simply bat it away and say, that has nothing to do with anything, um, but I'm going to leave that to your discretion. You get a bit of delight in saying, why on earth did you bring that up? Um, so <laughs> I don't want to deprive you of, uh, of the opportunity. Um, so look, the first thing that's conspired here, I mean, can we just, can we just nominate uh, the war in Ukraine? Um, yep. This huge foreign shock that has fundamentally disrupted energy supply lines to Europe most immediately, but which has ripple effects outwards for the world. So we could say that the single greatest factor that has led to this steep incline in fuel prices has been this exogenous shock of uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I should also say, off the back of that, and then you can say whatever you want to it, to some extent, we signed up for this. We were told yep, we did. in no uncertain terms that one of the costs borne by citizens of otherwise uninvolved nations, the cost of solidarity with Ukraine, would be steeper fuel prices. This was almost inevitable. Uh, and yet it was going to have to be, in addition to whatever material and military support various nations around the world offered Ukraine, this would have to be one of the costs that citizens themselves would have to bear as a way of offering something more than just spiritual or moral support, uh, but, but actual uh, human solidarity. Is there anything else you want to say about that side of things? No, I think that's a really important observation. Okay. Because it was fine when it was hypothetical. <laughs> yes, that's right. Or theoretical. <laughs> that's right. Uh, and it becomes something different when it became real. But also what's interesting is it's now been decoupled. So I think people understand, mm -hmm. oh, the war in Ukraine is um, like it's contributing to the cost of living crisis. I think sometimes its role might be a little overdetermined, not on fuel, but just generally. Mm. So we will acknowledge that. But when we do that, we talk about the Russian invasion of Ukraine as just a, a fact, an external fact, rather than that the bit that's having such a profound effect are the sanctions that we support on Russian energy, mm -hmm. which therefore mean there's less energy in the market and the price of energy goes up, which, you know, Australia has actually, as a nation, been a beneficiary of because commodity prices are going up and... Um, our budget's in a much better position than otherwise would have been. Mm. But what it does mean is that for individual Australians, uh, you know, especially with the, the excise relief on fuel That's in Australia right. having come to an end, which was a decision that the current government made to let it lapse and not to reinstitute it, you know, for budgetary reasons, that individual Australians hurt in different ways or to different degrees by this decision. But it's not as though anyone is now turning around to the Australian people and saying, 
do you still want to support Ukraine in this mm, way? Mm, okay. Not that it would necessarily make a difference if Australia did and I think, its mind. And I think it would, be callous, it would be callous and calculating if that particular yeah. point were made, yeah. Yeah, there's a, I think there are good reasons that no one's asking that question. That's right. But it's important that you identify what's happened there, yeah. Um, and I should also say, just as a footnote to that, one of the other things that we don't talk about a lot, and this brings us into one of the things that I think we should pick up later on, uh, the inability of the Biden presidency to reach an agreement with Iran that would lift sanctions on its stocks of oil. That's another big factor here in mm. the driving up of global oil prices. Um, it's something that we uh, like to talk about far less, uh, not least because of the climate implications of that, to say nothing of the geopolitical implications. But that's that's something else that's, that's going on here. Um, and What's be- actually happening there is a misalignment of our economic yeah. and geopolitical interests. That's right. And that just keeps, this is a theme that's been around for a long time, ever since, you know, we've had discussions, not on this show, but as a the Western world has had discussions about reliance on, for example, Saudi oil for a long time and so on. Mm-hmm. And there's been a lot of people saying, you know, this is disgusting, we shouldn't, whatever. Um, and then the minute the slightest chink is put in that army, you see what happens. Mm, that's right. Yeah. All right. Uh, the second factor, the second big factor here is, let's just call it the pandemic. Uh, and one of the things that the pandemic did and the various forms of government relief that were offered across the OECD is it led to a massive inflation of the respective nations' economies. And one of the things that you have to do if you if you pour money directly into people's pockets, in other words, in, in a non-targeted way, if you, try to in, if you try to encourage ongoing spending rather than give, say, a targeted uh, income relief, uh, one of the things that timely, in other words, quick, and uh, non-targeted, cash disbursements do is that they increase artificially over a short period of time the amount of discretionary monies uh, that are in people's pockets, and they increase then the amount of purchases of non-necessary items, which then drives up the cost of those items, which then causes a kind of ballooning out of the prices of things, which then leads to uh, a gradual process of inflation. And given the fact that Australia has not had, over the commensurate period, uh, a kind of commensurate raise in wages, although we're one of the few OECD nations, Waleed, that has not had a collapse or has not had a fall in wages, but we have not had a commensurate wage growth, which means that with inflation, wages have remained virtually static and therefore have have gone down uh, for most for most Australians. Couple that then, so this is the inflationary effect of government measures that were introduced over the course of the pandemic, uh, which were always going to have to come out of of the economy, right? I mean, the inflationary mm. effects were always going to have to come out, and one of the things. And, and sorry, we're always going to happen. This is the uh, like. Uh, this is, I think, the Reserve Bank's biggest failing, yeah. is it seems not to have recognised that. And I, maybe I'm just doing hindsight and, you, well, okay, whatever. But this is Economics 101, isn't it? You pump that much money into an economy, that much government money, you inflate demand, you get inflation. That's what will happen. Mm. And that's what has happened. So, but what's interesting is, for reasons that are perfectly understandable, no one was complaining when that money was being pumped in. Mm. Right. And this is an important part of the cost of living crisis for us to identify, acknowledge, is that we were happy with the cause or at least one of the significant causes of the crisis, but then we don't like the crisis itself. And the very fact that it enabled so many people to retain their jobs and the fact it enabled so many businesses to stay open. I mean, this is not an evaluation of those measures. I think in many respects, the measures themselves were impressive but when that becomes the kind of status quo ante, and when deflationary deflationary pressures are then introduced, and when that money then has to come out of the economy. One of the funniest things for me, Waleed, is that uh, a scourge that's been identified uh, in the United States has been the phenomenon over the last two years. Have you come across this? Of revenge spending. Yeah. Well, I remember people talking about it during lockdowns, <laughs> like as a prediction. And also not just that, revenge emissions, all this yeah, sort of stuff. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. So so revenge spending is, is essentially I wasn't able to go on holiday during the pandemic. 
So I'm going to go on holiday like there's no tomorrow. Yeah, and go on three. And go on three. That's exactly right. And so there are all sorts of things that were artificially blown up, artificially inflated. And now the money's begun to come out of that. A number of things are then uh, falling back to a kind of mean. But then, of course, that brings us to the third element here, which is due to the pandemic and the interruption of certain supply chains, due to, let's just call it straight up and down, the effects of climate change at certain parts of the world that have also interrupted uh, supply chains, and then due to other factors that I'm not sure I've got my head around, and I'm not entirely sure that I buy into some of the conspiracies surrounding it. But there's been a steep increase uh, um, over the course of the last 18 months in, let's just call them, necessities of life. Uh, so we would, we would call these things uh, food, uh, clothing, the non-discretionary things. Housing, health. Uh, yeah. Yes, yes. Well, health, yes, and let's just leave housing then as a as a final element to the cost of living crisis. Because as we discussed a couple of years ago, I mean, we are now, in terms of the housing crisis, we are reaping the whirlwind of Australia's determination to turn houses from something that is essential, essential of condition of possibility, to the very ability of humans to live well and to flourish. We've turned that into commodity. Uh, We've turned that into an opportunity for investment. We've therefore subjected housing as such to a kind of profit motive and used that as one of the ways in which we secure either wealth creation or secure uh, the acquisition of capital or secure the possibility of some kind of bequeath to be left to to our children. Yeah, and when we say we've done that, I think it's important to say that doesn't mean people have chosen to do that. It's that we've set up an economic taxation system, a political culture around that imperative. That's right. That's right. I imagine people have owned multiple properties for a very long time in history, but it's different to do that with, for example, tax concessions saying that that, making that a more sensible decision than investing your money in a different way. Yeah, or negative gearing or... Yeah, yeah. all this sort of stuff. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Now, all all that being said, I'm not entirely sure that I would allow someone to morally wash their hands of the decision to purchase an investment property uh, in a high-demand area where there are people who are struggling uh, to find sustainable or affordable housing. I mean, you're right, there's something structural there. There's a kind of national decision that's been made. Not entirely sure I'd absolve people of moral... Uh, accountability uh, on that front. But I I will just say that one of the truly wonderful political, uh, both federal and state developments over the last 18 months has been the announcement on the part of uh, the federal government, but also the two states that I know best, uh, Victoria, where you are, Queensland, where I am, uh, of the rapid construction of relatively large numbers of either social or affordable housing, which I think is, I mean, if you regard housing as I do, uh, as being essential to the very conditions of possibility of human well-being, then, I mean, that's that's wonderful, wonderful news indeed. That does very little in the short term, however. Uh, and we've seen, and this is, I guess, the thing that with the effects of inflation, the increase in interest rates, uh, hundreds of thousands of Australians coming off fixed-term mortgages, uh, or fixed-rate mortgages, I should say, uh, and then suddenly being confronted with rising interest rates and a ballooning out of the cost of their mortgages uh, and the pressure that that then places on their ability to feed their family and then everything else. Uh, There's something here which really is catastrophic. Yes, but can I... I think there's a very important thing to recognise here. Yeah. And that is that I do not for a moment deny how painful it is for so many people People with mortgages, uh, but people without them who are renting. Yeah, the rentals are backbreaking. Yeah. So I, I, not for a moment do I deny that. In fact, to acknowledge that is the very essence of the point I'm about to make, mm. and that is that it should not be painful yet. Interest rates are not that high. That's true. So what I mean by that is, what's the cash rate now? Four and a bit percent. Mm, that's right. That's about the average mm. from going back to the nineties. Right? We always say it's the highest it's been in a decade. We overlook the fact that that last decade has been artificially low. Mm. So these were, in other words, emergency level interest rates. They're now returning to what has historically been normal interest rates. That doesn't mean it doesn't hurt people. 
that very pain alerts us to the fact that something is deeply wrong because it shouldn't be hurting yet. And it's only hurting yet because we've got the housing market so badly wrong that people are clearly borrowing more than they can afford to borrow because they clearly feel, and probably rightly, that they don't have a choice Mm. because the housing market, that's just where it is and it's just going to keep galloping away from them. So they're taking a risk, but it probably feels like a smaller risk than delaying until they can actually afford to borrow that much, et cetera, in which case they've, they can afford even less equity in the home that they were looking at, and yeah. so on and so forth. Exactly. I think it is really important for us to acknowledge this fact that we are struggling under what are relatively normal conditions. Mm. That, like, I can't think of better evidence for the failure of of our setup than that. Mm. Now, when I say normal conditions, I don't mean inflation, but clearly this is abnormal inflation. Um, But interest rates, which are the lever that's being pulled to bring that inflation under control, they're sitting in what should be a normal range. Yes, that's right. And we must have crossed a threshold now where normal interest rates are impossible unless the aim is to crash the whole thing. So we're just going to have a lot of pain until we somehow get things back on some relatively even keel. Yeah, but it does look like interest rates here, interest rates in the United States, for instance, it looks as though there is less imperative to keep ramping up those interest rates. In in other words, it looks as though inflation has begun to either level out or decline. Um, So it looks like the intended effect is being had. Mm. Here's what I wanted to point out, though, Waleed. Um. There are things, obviously, in response to a cost-of-living crisis that only politics can do. Um, We can say that we've made a generation-upon-generation mistake, uh, encouraged, yes, by certain policies that encouraged us us to do so. We can say that we've made a mistake about housing. But there's something else that's going on here, and this is why I thought it was really important to lay all four of the planks, if you like, that form the walls of this cost of living crisis. We are in a situation that is eerily similar to the 1970s. I'm not sure if you've ever made this connection, but the the connection interests me, concerns me, and I think I I think in some respects it's instructive. So you had, for instance, the oil shock that really did stretch quite profoundly from around 1972, 1973, uh, with the Yom Kippur War, for instance, right through to the end of the 1970s with the Iran. Uh, with the Iranian Revolution, uh, Iraq's invasion, and so on in 1978, 1979. Now, that created the conditions. I mean, we talked about this, didn't we, when we discussed um, Faulty Towers, remember, at the the start of the year? There are multiple references throughout Faulty Towers to the cost of oil. Uh, And it's for precisely this reason, that cost of oil skyrocketed because of a kind of geopolitical rupture. An interruption of uh, of supply chains, a realignment of alliances, the outbreak of war, and so on. At the same time, we had the the whole stagflation phenomenon, namely stagnant or non-existent wage growth and out-of-control interest rates. I mean, one of the things that's really salutary is to go back and look at interest rates in Australia, in the UK, in the US in the 1970s. Talk about things being relatively normal around 4%. It was pl- it was upwards of 10, 11, 12% mm-hmm. in the same period. Just on lower debt, that's the problem. On lower debt, that's, that's right. Uh, but it created conditions of political dissatisfaction and upheaval, as, as we know. We know from the sorts of politicians that were elected during that period. Now, here's what I find interesting. Towards the end of the 1970s, in response to the oil shock, in response to high interest rates, and in response to a kind of stagnant economy, President Jimmy Carter, who you'll remember was elected after Gerald Ford, so it went Nixon, and then we know what happened to Nixon. Ford was in his place, pardoned Nixon, which is looking like an interesting decision in the light of certain things that are going on in the United (laughs) States now, but we can talk about that maybe on another show. Uh, And then Jimmy Carter, who was the kind of the unimpeachable, kind of clean candidate in stark contrast to the grubbiness, the uh, perceived grubbiness of the previous two presidents. One of the things I did, do you remember the speeches that he gave in both 1977 and 1979, where he said that essentially the United States 
was facing an energy crisis that would only ramp up over time. For him, it was not just the possibility of environmental devastation, which he was flagging already in the 1970s, but it was also because of the shifting alliances of geopolitics, uh, the shifting plates, and therefore the unlikelihood the United States could ever have a steady supply of oil uh, from the Middle East to its own shores. His response then was, yes, we need to engage in a form of uh, political national innovation. He was a kind of proponent of nuclear power, though in a relatively modest form, which again would be interesting to talk about another time. But he said that one of the ways, and here he invoked William James's great idea from his uh, 1906 lecture called The Moral Equivalent of War. He says, here in the face of this energy crisis, Americans are engaged, they are enlisted in, he said, in the moral equivalent of war. And the way that we meet that challenge isn't by taking up arms, but by modifying our lifestyles. So he said, as a matter of patriotic duty, drive less. Don't take your weekend trips into the countryside. Try to conserve the amount of heating that you're using. Consider perhaps wearing sweaters inside. Think about carpooling or using public transport. And he kind of went down the line. I mean, it's, it's quite an impressive program of national duty, of personal responsibility, as a way of saying, yes, there's certain things that the government can do in response to this crisis, but there are also certain things that citizens together need to do. Chief among them, change your lifestyle and modify your consuming, your consumption habits. So, transposing that into today, would you say the patriotic thing to do would be for people of means to, apart from giving charity or whatever, stop spending? Uh, wow. Well, that's where this leads, isn't it? We have an inflation problem partly because of excess demand. Yes. That's because there are people who actually didn't suffer economically through the pandemic. They built up a lot of savings. We keep hearing this from economists and from the Reserve Bank and so on, part of what the Reserve Bank's trying to do is suck that those savings, savings out of the economy. That's right. The problem is that that process, while it might be achieving that end, and it may be the only lever that the RBA has at its disposal, so that's all it can really do, the problem is that inflicts pain on a whole bunch of people, many of whom aren't the ones who had access to Precisely. Right? So the pain is not commensurate with the causes of that pain. Well, um, I, I mean, yes, I agree completely with your diagnosis. Here's the point. So, but, yeah, but my point is you need then to remove demand. Who can remove demand? Well, it can't be people who are struggling to eat. That's right. So it has to be people who aren't. And so doesn't that lead you to the position? Don't you, don't you have to now say if you, if you have means, stop spending? Uh, quite possibly. Here, here's the point. Jimmy Carter was hammered in the 1979 election. I mean, decimated by the rising candidate, Ronald Reagan. Um, Jimmy Carter's uh, appeal to the American people, to a democratic public, has now haunted generation upon generation of politicians in response to various waves or successive waves of cost of living crisis. So it's not an option. The idea being that the only thing that a government can do is to try to shield the population as much as possible from these kind of inevitable shocks. Here's my question, Waleed. These shocks are going to keep coming, not least as Australia and other nations transfer, transition away from fossil fuels and towards forms of sustainable electrification. It's not going to be possible for the Australian public to keep being shielded or cushioned from waves upon waves upon waves. At some point, there is simply going to have to be an acceptance that a cost has to be borne, that a certain style of life or a certain expectation of discretionary spending is going to have to contract as a result, that targeted relief, targeted relief is going to have to be given and given with a degree of generosity perhaps we haven't seen before to those who are least able to withstand the effect of those waves upon waves of shocks. 
And I think in response to that, you're right, not only is there going to have to be a preparedness to accept higher taxation rates for middle earners, but there's also going to have to be, I think you're exactly right, a preparedness not to engage in the same kind of discretionary spending to which we've become accustomed, not simply in, as a form, as, as a display of solidarity with those who are least able to withstand these economic shocks, but also as part of our shared commitment to move away from forms of energy consumption and reliance upon fossil fuels, which, again, we've just been reminded of over the last two years with the war in Ukraine. Uh, we're going to have to prepare ourselves to withstand those shocks as a form of our shared commitment to move away from a reliance on those uh, on fossil fuels and towards forms of life that are necessarily, inevitably, I think, going to have to involve uh, fewer forms of energy consumption. Mm-hmm. That, that, I think, is the salutary lesson from the 1970s. And the fact that politicians have been so unwilling to go down that path, to ask for those kinds of sacrifices from their publics, uh, um, I think that should make us lower, I believe, our expectations of what the federal and state governments should be doing in response to this crisis, even as we expect, I think, rightly from them, uh, to give the maximum possible benefit to those uh, who are least able to withstand it. Oh, there's so much to say. We're going to need someone to help us out, Scott. We do need some help, and that help is Ben Bramble. He's lecturer in the Fenner School of Environment and Society. He also, very conveniently for us, teaches moral philosophy in the School of Philosophy at Australian National University. Ben, thank you so much for joining us on The Minefield. Thank you, Scott. Over to you. Yeah, look, so I I think what you're saying is exactly right. I think certain sacrifices are going to have to be made. Uh, I think you're also right that it's extremely difficult to expect people to sort of make them on their own. So, you know, asking people to make sacrifices like Carter did, um, it's, it's probably probably not going to work. But I think, I think interestingly, many people, while they won't voluntarily make sacrifices, they would voluntarily agree to be sort of forced to make such sacrifices along with everyone else. So I think it's very hard to sort of talk people into um, voluntarily consuming less. But I think people will go along with perhaps laws that, you know, encourage or incentivize or even in certain cases force people to spend less. If saving um, the economy and, uh, and propping up the well-being of the lower and middle classes is, is at stake here. So that, that's one point I'd make. I think another very important part of it is that governments need to help to communicate better to the the higher income earners exactly the sort of pain and hardship that is being experienced by lower and middle earners. So I think that it's not fully appreciated exactly how hard things are right now for people in lower and middle income earning brackets. So the government needs to communicate this better. And I think the sort of things that you guys were saying earlier, they're exactly right. So housing is clearly at the centre of things here. So without a home, you know, a secure home, you can't build a life. You know, if you could be evicted, you can't really build a life, not only in that particular dwelling, but but in the community. And that's bad not only for the people who live there, but also for the community, because, you know, when you're secure in a community, you can contribute to it uh, over time, you know, better, more invested in it. So that's just you know, hugely bad, not only for individuals, but for communities. Um, and then, of course, you know, if you can't afford the rates on your mortgage or your rents, then you're going to sort of change course in your professional life and you're going to start to you know, maybe work in a career that, uh, that doesn't excite you just to pay the bills, sort of maximise your income. This is really bad, not only for the people who are sort of sacrificing their dreams in this way, but it's also bad for the economy because we i think it's very important that people be able to you know have a chance to pursue their dreams and to pursue their their talents and inclinations which maybe won't make much much money in the short term and can be financially risky but you know so much talent exists across the socioeconomic spectrum and you know we're really you know kicking ourselves if we're not taking advantage of all that talent we need to make it possible as a priority for smart kids in all sorts of classes to go to university and pursue what interests them. 
And then, of course, you've got um, all the damages to relationships from families and households who are financially squeezed. This is, in turn, disastrous for health outcomes. Study after study shows that. I think, I think really in Australia, you've got a sense of, you know, among these classes, a sort of hopelessness and a sense of you know, impossibility. They'll never be able to, in some cases, afford a home, let alone a home in a place that they want to live, um, a place where their family lives even. Um, so I think there's a definite sense that there's a rigged economy. And this this is just catastrophic for, for well-being. And this is something that people, you know, higher income earners, I think they just don't really appreciate it. So how do you communicate this situation, the sort of sense of hopelessness that so many people have to the people in who are doing well? How do you how do you do that? That's got to be part of it. The government can't convince people to tighten their belts, I think, you know, the wealthier people to tighten their belts if they don't understand you know, why that's so important. Um, and then, of course, you know, when people are feeling this sense of hopelessness and uh, as if the economy is rigged, this this fosters kind of anti-elitist sentiments. It fuels the sort of toxic Trump America that we have and that exists here in Australia to a certain extent as well. Well, in fact, Ben, I think, I mean, it's it's fairly easy to point to, I guess, some of the populist upheavals in the United States and even certain expressions we've seen in the UK. What's really interesting for me here would be the example of the Gilets jaunes movement in France, mm. which ordinarily, ordinarily sort of progressive persons would feel a degree of sympathy for. These are working class people who are just trying to go about their business and due to uh, what would seem to be uh, a unilateral restriction on fossil fuels, uh, on the use of petrol, and therefore uh, an increased excise on on fuels to try to encourage people, including truck drivers, to drive less. There's been this kind of, would you call it a populist movement? I'm not sure. Maybe a, a counter-democratic movement to try to say that the cost of your climate reforms, however noble they may be, are being borne by those who should not have to bear them. There's a kind of nobility in that. The question, I guess, and, and this is this is maybe what, what I keep coming back to, the inclination of governments has been to try to shield populations from that cost, from having to sacrifice in response to certain things like, you know, climate change, like our transition away from carbon emissions and, and so on. You, you said before, how does the government convince high-income earners to recognize the pain that's being endured by their fellows within this political community? I guess one of the other questions is, does a government have to convince those who are a sort of, say, high-middle-to-middle-income earners that there are costs that they are going to have to bear, that the government cannot completely shield them from, but it's part of our common effort to move away from an unsustainable form of living to a form of living that is, in fact, going to be more sustainable and just. But also, can I add, if we're asking everybody to make sacrifices, is there a cohort for whom we're saying they cannot be asked to make sacrifices? So would you say, for example, those who are on lower to middle incomes, is the bargain that we're sort of cobbling together here that nothing's asked of them? And so that whatever pain they feel has to be compensated or offset in some kind of way. Um, an example of this might be, remember the, the uproar when Philip Lowe made the point that it would be quite helpful if more people lived in a dwelling, right? So there, I heard another financial person make this observation. So I don't know the figures on this. This is just what he'd say, said had been happening, but that with COVID, what happened is people started valuing space. And so where four people might have lived in a house, now it would be two, right? That's starting, we're starting to see that across the economy. Now, if we take that as true, if Philip Lowe is asking people, well, it would be a good idea for that to happen, he was immediately beset upon, how dare you say that? What he's saying is true. I mean, the number crunching would make that true. If more people lived in a house, that would take pressure off the rental market and rents would eventually, perhaps even quite quickly, come down as a result. Are we saying, though, that that's an impermissible thing to ask mm, within this settlement because these nothing can be asked of these people? Or are we saying, no, this is what a cost-of-living crisis is 
It's, we call it cost of living. Really what it is, is a change in our standard of living. Mm, and that applies to everybody. Wow. I mean, to take that example you gave, is that really a sacrifice, though? I, I'm not sure. I mean, Well, it clearly yeah. was because people were very upset about having been <laughs> told Well, <laughs> yeah, I think people, <laughs> they don't necessarily like the idea of it. But, I mean, I think, I think um, there are all sorts of uh, contributions to well-being that can be made from people living more with others and less and less by themselves. So I mean, there are you know cases of young people moving in to spare rooms of of older people, and and the evidence is that both groups benefit greatly there. So I think mm. bringing people together can often you know boost well-being in all sorts of ways. Um, it's like people don't necessarily want to use public transport; they want to drive in their their private car. But there are all sorts of benefits to you of of commuting with other people. And, um, you know, <laughs> there are some downsides too, but there are all sorts of um, benefits, benefits of community. You meet new people, you engage in conversation, you don't expect you, um, there's a sense of community. You know, you come to understand what other other people are feeling and thinking in a way that you don't if you're driving y- your car by yourself. And the same with living and housing as well. I think we need to be more creative about possibilities for, for new kinds of housing. Absolutely. I think, and asking that of people, I mean, there's a question, it's one thing to put it on the table, describe it, offer it, make the case for it, and then another to sort of um, incentivize it, and then another to force people. I'm not saying we mm. should be forcing people mm. to do that, but the first two options seem, yeah. you know, well, fantastic. Well, except that the I don't see kind of forcing people, I guess. That's the, but well, so would you say then that the problem with what Philip Lowe said there was not that it was an unreasonable thing to say or even to ask of people? I mean, I'm not sure if he was asking, but whatever. It's not that that's unreasonable. It's that it sits alongside a sense that nothing's being asked of other people. I don't see why we need to ask anything of people in the lower um, or even the lower to middle income brackets. I, I think that there's th- these are tough times, but there's more than enough wealth at the top end uh, to help ride us through these times, I believe. I mean, you know, just taxing the mega rich isn't going to do it. But, but why? Why do people need to be earning more than I don't know, three, four, five hundred thousand dollars a year? It's crazy. I, I don't see why, particularly um, in the sorts of jobs they have that that aren't, you know, in many cases contributing that much to society. You, you understand you run, you run into a really complicated argument there. I mean, that's your allocation of value to a particular job. If people are prepared to pay someone for their skills that earns them that, you know, why should that? Like, is capping income in some way really the way through this? I mean, that that would seem the hardest possible path to hoe. Well, I'm not saying capping income, but just increasing increasing tax rates on on higher income earners or, you know, closing loopholes for tax. I mean, there are, you know, there are lots of ways that you can, the governments can increase their yield uh, that that wouldn't be that painful for people in those brackets. And I think that's the key point. You know, obviously people in those brackets, they don't want to pay more tax, but, um, and it's bad for them in some sense. It's bad for, you know, the bank balance or whatever. It's bad for their hopes and dreams to acquire their 10th investment property or whatever, but but that's not substantially reducing their well-being. Um, and in times when the well-being of so many people is being substantially reduced. I think you've really you've got to look at, at those sort of measures and making that case. And I think we do need courage from our leaders to make that case. I, th- I think it can be done. I, th- I mean, as you've been suggesting, I think something like that may have to be done. I'm, I'm more than broadly sympathetic with what you're saying, Ben. And in fact, we've kind of discussed something more or less along these lines with Miranda Stewart uh, on taxation policy a few weeks ago and with Ryan Cox um, a little bit earlier this year talking about the way that, say, an inheritance tax could fund high-quality universal childhood education. Um, I think one of the things we've often talked about is the importance of any such system of rigorous taxation for the highest earners being what's the best way of putting it, Waleed, kind of teleologically connected to some public good, uh, lest it become kind of swamped in a cloud of, uh, of resentment uh, or of illegitimate or coercive seizure. I mean, that, that's been one of the consistent themes, I think, of a lot of the political philosophical reasoning concerning taxation policy. The, the thing that I keep coming back to, though, and I realize it's probably, I don't know, 
Is it callous to talk about this during a cost-of-living crisis? It just strikes me that coming out of the pandemic with this, the current oil shock or fuel shock, I mean, this kind of scarcity is going to become increasingly the norm in a climate-changed world. And the expectation that governments will never ask us to sacrifice or never ask anybody except the top earners to sacrifice and that they'll be able to introduce wave upon wave of ameliorative measures, for instance, to shield us so that, you know, they, there's never going to go, a politician is never going to go into an election saying, you know, you're going to be a little bit worse after I'm elected. It just strikes me that even with a rigorous and well-adjusted, uh, well-placed taxation policy that's teleologically connected to some public good, we're still going to have to rediscover the language of solidarity and shared sacrifice for middle and middle-to-high income earners. In other words, as Waleed put it before, a reduction in our spending habits. I, I just don't see that there's going to be any other option if we're to adjust as a society at the kind of scale that a climate-changed world is going to demand. I think that's right, but I do think it's politically feasible. I think, I mean, you sound skeptical, and that seems reasonable, but I think there are a whole host of other things that governments can say to make it more palatable. I think... Can you give me an example? Mm, that's right. yeah, <laughs> I'm wondering. Well, sure, sure, sure. So, you know, earlier I, I mentioned that a better job has to be done of communicating the hardship of people in the lower brackets. Another thing that can be done is to point out, look, you know, when you buy your 10th investment property, given the scarcity of housing, you are, you're actually harming. It's not that you're, uh, you know, merely benefiting. You're actually contributing to the pain of people in the lower brackets. I think that's something that perhaps a lot of people don't realize. There's a kind of complicity there. And uh, I think that um, you know, if, if that was better communicated, people might start to feel a bit bad about you know, buying their 10th investment property. Another thing they, that we can drum up and point out better is that people who get to these positions of extreme wealth, they do it on the back of um, huge advantage, you know, typically private schooling, family connections, networks, you know, the economy, it is rigged to a very large extent. And I think that that has to be, you know, pointed out and it's confronting. And if you do it wrong, you're going to alienate people and uh, in the higher brackets and, and make them hate you. But, but if you do and, and this, you do and this well, is your plan you to persuade do... the public? <laughs> well, no, I just, I think that there's a, I think there's a whole host of things that can be done to sort of help people in those positions to better understand the true nature of the situation. But I think the problem um, you run into there is it cuts across a very now deeply established culture, I suppose is the right word, or maybe conventional wisdom, that falls down on the side of aspiration. Mm -hmm. So when you go after, what are we calling it, high income, I think we said up high middle, whatever it was, the phrase that we said a lot. When you go after that, you're not just going after people who are a people apart that you will never be. You are going after people who see themselves in those those mm. people. So you see true. their future as possibly being that. A lot of the people who are really struggling right now will be university students or whatever, who very much are going to be those people at some well, point in have, the future. If they have parents who own property in those certain suburbs. Yeah, maybe Possibly, then. Maybe if they don't, because they're going to end up being partners in law firms or whatever, right? So it's still, that's still a very small minority, I would say. Well, possibly. Uh, the, but, vast, it, the vast majority of people who are struggling have no hope in hell of getting anything anywhere near to that point, I think. Yeah, that, that's probably true. In fact, most people won't reach, you know, the partnership in a law firm. That's, that's clearly true. But my point is that if that's the story we're going to offer people is the whole thing's rigged, you are where you are, it has absolutely nothing to do with you, uh, it's got nothing to do with what you put in or anything like that. I, first of all, I don't think there's a good way of selling that to a society that quite deeply doesn't believe it and hasn't for probably decades now. Maybe 50 but years ago that would have worked. But there's no prospect of that. I mean, I just I, I mean, just I didn't say see. that, though. I, I'm not saying that um, there shouldn't be any reward for effort. Absolutely not. I'm saying at, at the very highest levels, the taxation rate should be, should be higher. You know, you can still do really well by working hard and being strategic and 
being smart and entrepreneurial or whatever. For sure, we want a, a society like that. But I think reducing you, extreme wealth is not me, going to deter anybody. Sure, but you've just told me that the reason people are in that position is because of their circumstance. Right? You, like that's the narrative. Well, in part. You, in part. Yeah, that's well, right. Okay, in, in what part? Because if it's, if it's not in large, large part... part. Oh, okay, well, you, okay so, so this is my point, right? So, so the narrative you're ultimately trying to sell is that these things are ultimately mostly determined for you and they are not a function of your application or anything like that. Now, we can have an argument about whether or not that's true. Like, I'm certainly open to the argument that that might be a true description of things, but you were talking about this as a matter of political communication and I'm saying to, to an electorate that has for so long, I think over a period of time, evolved to a point of an aspirational view of things in a society that has a lot more social mobility in it than, for example, the United Kingdom would. That, that is a political message. I can't see a successful version of it. And I, just, I just don't know how you can possibly do that. Well, look, I mean, a big part of it is just luck. And, um, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying we should completely get rid of luck in the system, you know, luck in who you meet, luck in the ideas you have, luck in, you know, all the decisions you make, all sorts of things. And there's still room, as I say, it, it's consistent to think that the people who are who really succeeded professionally and um, financially, you know, have got there largely, you know, through luck and at least relative, you know, a lot of them have worked very hard, but, you know, there are a lot of people who have also worked very hard and not been able to succeed due to that. That's that's um, definitely, yeah, there's no doubt about that. There's no doubt about that. I, I just wonder right. about the political saleability of it to an aspirational public. Yeah, no, I think it's, look, it's a reasonable worry and um, is it feasible? I don't know. But I think I think with the right sort of leadership and the right sort of message with nuance, with passion, uh, it can be done. It's the same kind of thing that, um, you know, it would have been nice if our leaders had, would have done regarding... Um, you know, climate change and, and mining taxes mm. and things, you know, th there's a case there to be made. I think not anyone can make it. And so mm. I understand why politicians haven't been necessarily making it because it's hard to do. Um, we need better politicians. We, we need to find people who can. <laughs> Talk uh, about aspirational. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, that, that might look, be honest, the single greatest well, prescription we've had on the show. <laughs> I mean, you know, honestly, honestly, why are, you know, why don't we have better politicians? I think a large part of it is that, Look, I, you know, I did arts law at Sydney Uni and my peers were unbelievably brilliant people. What, mm. what did they do? Where are they now? Largely, they're consultants and bankers and the, the most brilliant people, they didn't go into politics. Yeah, um, yeah, I, yeah. yeah. That's, we definitely have to do a show, actually, on political recruitment. That's yeah. our point, Scott. Ben, I'm afraid we're out of time. We have really no choice but to leave it there. But thank you so much for joining us today. It's been great to speak. That's Ben Bramble, lecturer in the Fenner School of Environment Society at the Australian National University. I guess for this week's edition of The Minefield. We'll see you next week. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.